I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot, scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. So welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about the Internet of Robots or something like that. I'm really pleased. I've got uh, Dave Ross, who runs business development for a company called BrainCorp. So Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, uh, well, it's a real pleasure. Uh, you work for this very cool company, and actually you've worked for several cool companies, done some, had some amazing experience over your, uh, your years of doing deals and business development. Um, so we may get into that if we have time, but um, first of all, just tell us who BrainCorp are. So BrainCorp is a 10-year-old company. It was actually started at Qualcomm, where you and I met. Um, and two, two neuroscientists from a local neuroscience center in San Diego, which is now gone, I think we hired everyone out of there, and so there's no one left. But um, uh, they, had, they came, they were hired by Paul Jacobs and Matt Grob, our CEO and CTO of Qualcomm at the time, to come to Qualcomm to develop a, a processor that would model the way the human brain processes vision. And what's interesting about that is, 95 plus percent of information coming into our brain as human beings is, is vision, is, is visual information. Um, and, uh, and so they were successful in implementing a really interesting processor that could really effectively or efficiently process information in that way. Very similar in, it's more of a, a matrix. If, like, if you could think of like a CPU as kind of a few cores, like not very good at multiple, multiple processes. Um, whereas a GPU or graphics processor may have 4,000 cores and each core is responsible for a small portion of a screen or a VR or something. But uh, the processor, a neural processor, which they're known as now, very much of a matrix kind of thing, very much with memory sort of laced throughout it, just like our brains are. I mean, you imagine having a stroke and then you still remember some stuff because it doesn't just destroy your, all your memory. It 
takes a part of it out. And so these neural cores are currently in the newest version of Snapdragon. So the, the, the big fancy processors that Qualcomm ships for smartphones um, mm -hmm. just appeared in the, so the work of 10 years ago is now just appearing commercially as neural cores as part of Snapdragon, which is being shipped out into uh, many of the smartphones. And, um, and of course they built this custom chip. There was no software to run on the chip, you know? So they actually uh, had to create ways to test the chip. And one of the ways they tested it was through robotics. So they had robots that would figure stuff out and would you know, through vision. So they, they figured their way through a maze like a rat or do these kinds of things. And, um, and then about five years ago, Eugene and Botan, who really started Brain, um, decided to leave Qualcomm and start a robotics company. And um, folk, one of the early focuses was on something very not sexy, uh, not like autonomous driving and all this romantic notion of autonomy, but basically floor cleaning. So if you think about, no one wants to be the janitor, really, or maybe, maybe some do, but the point is, and janitors are cool, we love janitors. In fact, I would say today that Brain has elevated a janitorial position into that of a robot overlord because the robots are managed by janitors and um, trained by janitors and they help janitors. They don't replace a janitor, they help yeah. the janitor. And so um, it was really a smart uh, vision. And just like Qualcomm initially, if, if uh, you recall, Qualcomm used to make phones. Why did Qualcomm make phones? Because no one else would. You know, we had this wonderful technology that would allow for 20 times the number of circuits or, or phone calls a hundred times the amount of data and no one would want to, to build a phone with that because there was a competing digital technology that was supported by Motorola and Nokia. Have you, have you heard of those companies? Because I, they don't have, exist anymore. Have, yeah. But I remember back at the time they were the behemoths and they had refused to build any kind of device that would support the Qualcomm digital technology. So we got in the business of making phones and selling phones and competing with them. But then Samsung started being, building phones with our technology and we had to get out of the phone business because we didn't want to compete with Samsung. But much like that, Brain kind of started out building with a partner in China, a floor care robot that would scrub floors, pretty big thousand pound type of robot. Like you, you currently see them running around in airports and malls and uh -huh. they clean up to 90,000 square feet a day in some cases. Um, we see reports from like the hospitals that are using them now are using them almost half the day. Uh -huh. um, but that irritated a lot of the people making cleaning machines for, for manual use. So the, you know, and you'll see a lot of brain robots have a seat in them because we basically have helped a number of OEMs to automate their existing floor care equipment. And so um, we got, we quickly got out of the robot building business. And now we have our partners, the Samsung of, of, uh, of floor care robotics currently is a company called Tenet. 150-year-old company and uh, amazing company. And um, they quickly got in and started selling robots directly. And, and uh, we've been scaling quite rapidly with their help and a number of other new OEMs coming on board too. So very similar to a Qualcomm model in that we're enabling other OEMs to, to build the products. Uh -huh. And I want to say Qualcomm probably ended up putting a smartphone in the hands of every single person on earth with the help of maybe 12 major OEMs. Mm -hmm. Currently, Brain has seven OEMs in the floor care business, as, a, as an example. And we're rapidly growing just like Qualcomm did. So it's amazing strategy and amazing company. Fantastic. 
let's uh, tweezer apart a few of those things and uh, just go back and recap. So BrainCorp started as research on-site at, at Qualcomm. You're now venture-funded, right? You have uh, Qualcomm's an investor, SoftBank's an investor. Um, and, and my memory of BrainCorp was it was they were creating a brain on a chip, which I, I think is what you said. Is it, you, is it a neural network or the word neural was in there, but uh, is it a neural it's a neural network? processor. And so, um, and this is, now we're outside of my understanding of technology and, and usually I, I'm, I'm hanging out with one of the, one of the co-founders, a guy named Botan from Hungary, who I would say is a really good engineer with a personality, if, if that yeah. makes sense. And he would be here laughing at all the stuff I'm saying right now. So I, I dare to tread into these waters of, of neural networks. They're a very small neural. viewership, so he probably right. won't do this. So feel free I to- I barely understand it, and Botan won't help me understand it, and every time I talk about it, he laughs. So he would be laughing, I'm sure. He will laugh when okay. I send him this. But, you know, we're not talking about just a conventional uh, CPU, ARM-type CPU. We're talking about a radically different approach to developing a processor. And then the question is, you know, what are you going to do with that? And and it seems like you guys pivoted, or at least you decided you were going to focus on the OS. My understanding is you're an OS company. Is That's that correct. Right? Correct. OS. We focused on the, 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 op, the operating system of robotics, essentially. And it, robotics actually works really well and very safely. Um, there a lot of a lot of statistics in operating robots safely, um, and leveraging sensor fusion of various kinds with lidars and cameras, and we don't even need a, a graphics processor or a neural processor. We use a CPU to navigate safely and have a very good safety record so far. Not wood, um, and uh, and but it's it's more about the system. It's a system level kind of solution. Um, if all we had to do as humans is navigate safely around, I think you know our brains would have not much of a load to carry. And so we, we don't need the neural processors, but we're getting more and more into solutions, mobile IoT solutions, where we're collecting a lot of data around us and we're processing that data. We want to do it on the robot itself to say, that's a box of, of Fruit Loops. That's a 22-ounce that's a jar of, peanut butter, of Skippy peanut butter. That is a, a, a Polish hot dog with a wheat bun, you know, these kinds of things. And, um, and that takes a lot of, a lot of the neural type of processing, even, even graphics type of processing where you're using multiple cores. And somewhere in that question about neural networks and the multiple cores in a GPU and a neural chip is, is why that would work. But it's beyond my uh, understanding at the time. And I, I, I don't mind being laughed at, but I'm pretty sure that the giggles haven't stopped at this point. So <laughs> wouldn't have stop right there. So, um, from my memory of robotics, the first law is don't kill people. How, how's that going? Are you uh, doing We're doing right? great with that. It's, okay. it's awesome. What, what's, what's interesting about a non-sexy uh, janitorial job is I don't have to go 80 miles an hour to do it. Okay. Um, and I think that's a problem when you start talking about autonomous driving, is that what, what happens if someone sideswipes you and wipes out half your sensors and you're going 80 miles an hour? Do you lock up the brakes? Well, what happens to the people behind you? Do you slowly pull over to the side of the road? Well, what if those sensors are missing or damaged? You know, so there's all these problems at speed with safety. Um, when you go three miles an hour, if anything happens that's weird, just stop. 
just stop. And we can stop much faster than a human can because we're really good with brakes and really good with uh, instantly stopping. And an example, my son was going uh, into his high school one morning with his new car and he hit the gate of the school. And I said, why'd you hit the gate of the school? He said, well, the sun got in my eyes. And I'm like, son, if, if the sun got in the robot's sensors, it would stop. So the robots are already better than my son at driving at slow speeds. And so uh, I tried to point that out to him that he should uh, drive more like a robot does. Yeah. Slow and, uh, and stop often. I need to try that with my son as well. He's, uh, we've got <laughs> several, several dents that have appeared in what has now become his car because no one else wants to, to drive it. Um, okay, so um, robots are pretty safe so far. Um, can you give a sense of, you know, who's using these things? It sounds like you've got a whole bunch of OEMs, and I want to go into a little bit more about what that means and how that works, but uh, um, uh, how, how's business? Are you uh, finding people want these things? Business is great. We, 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 we got another round of funding in the middle of this pandemic, which is... Uh, it's newsworthy, I'd say, yeah. because um, and the pandemic has in increased demand for autonomy and for because a lot of uh, a lot of people aren't going to work and things still need to be kept clean. And in, in going back to work, the demand for they really want they want it to be like not just quite clean. They want it to be very, very clean, very, very, very clean. Right. And so we're even looking at solutions to add higher levels of cleanliness, approaching, approaching more of a, a disinfection level of, of, of cleanliness. And we're exploring a lot of those solutions and having conversations with a lot of our customers now. But our robots currently, you can find them in malls, airports, schools. Many of the major or most of the major retailers in the United States use our robots at night to clean their floors, especially where they have large, shiny floors, um, yeah. because our robots weigh a thousand pounds, uh, down to 100 pounds. The vacuums currently are 100 pounds. Working on some inter interesting mops that will be in the smaller uh, physics range. But unlike Roombas, 1,000 pound things can't bump into stuff. So we have to steadily guide ourselves to clean and then also make sure we navigate around people or any objects that are unexpected and that sort of thing. But we have, I'd say the fleet is, uh, the active fleet is over 10,000 units. And then the inventory that's been shipped and waiting to be deployed is, is uh, much higher than that. So that's a, a lot of stores. And I'm guessing that typically these are in larger stores. If I've got uh, like a tiny boutique, probably don't need a massive uh, artificially intelligent robot. But uh, if I'm a big box store, good idea. 30,000 feet and up for a larger robot and then we're working on a number of smaller robots to fit the, the, the uh, smaller square footage stores that make sense. Um, and usually what happens is, uh, again, the janitor, nothing happens to the janitor. What happens is the janitor gets to clean everything better. And now that, now that, now that COVID hit or the, the pandemic is here, um, you take the bulk of the work of cleaning the floor and you know, can take two to three to four hours for a robot to do that bulk of that work. The janitor can spend that time now cleaning the bathrooms better, disinfecting the back bathrooms better, disinfecting the clean floor better. So the janitors are freed up to do more uh, to keep things cleaner because you're taking the bulk of, of work and, and having a robot do it that's being managed by a janitor. So 
And is it safe to have these guys going during the day? It, uh, obviously, no brainer, middle of the night. Uh, these guys are going to stick to what they're supposed to be doing. They're trustworthy and uh, they can work hard constantly. But what about doing it during the day? I imagine that there's reasons why you might want a robot to be roaming around your store during the day. Is that feasible? So it's up to the stores to manage it however they want. What, what mostly people run them at night because there's less people and the robot gets it done quickly. It's also yeah. the time where the janitors are cleaning anyway because janitors tend to clean when people aren't there. Um, so the store manage it. What I've noticed is a lot of stores or some stores are running the robots so people can see them because then people can see, oh, wow, the, this, this place is being kept clean robotically. That's cool. And so it's helping people be confident to be in the stores that it's being kept clean and that sort of thing. So I've noticed some retailers are running them at that time just so that people see it. If there's a lot of obstacles and people in the way, it might take the robot longer to clean the store, right? Because yeah. it's, you know, it, it, goes, it has to slow down and go carefully around people. And so it can do it a lot faster if they're not around. And what else can you use this robot for? I'm imagining it's kind of pretty expensive bit of kit. Uh, you, are there other things you can do with it other than have it clean the floor? Absolutely. So we're working now on adding more use cases to the robot. And we've got several prototypes out that we're testing to collect data. So as robots are cleaning the, the floors in different places, they're building their own maps. And so every day they build a new map of the environment so that they know where they're going to navigate to. And, and they have a, a understanding of a, a janitor basically trains the robot how to clean the store. So the robot knows generally what it should do. Maybe it goes around the food section five or 10 times because it's dirtier because the janitor would do that. Um, and, but it, maybe there's an, maybe someone put a chair in, or a pallet of stuff in the middle of, of the floor. So it has to build a map every day of what, what it's doing. And because it's building a map that has to be pretty accurate down to the centimeter, we can map data on that same map. So I can collect temperature data around the same place and give you a, a map showing the temperature throughout this, this uh, you know, understanding of the store. Mm -hmm. um, we can take photographs of things and run AI models and then locate, localize, we say, or localize points of interest at the airport. We actually did a proof of concept where we took camera data and built a map of the airport where the men's rooms were and where the, those screens that give you information about flights and ATM machines and all the kinds of things you might be interested. And that stuff moves around quite a bit, actually. Even harder, we're doing this in retail environments. So we're taking pictures of inventory in stores and we're able to tell the store exactly what's out of stock, exactly what, where stuff is. And, and it's very powerful, especially... Um, with, the, with the pandemic, we were actually able to tell some of our proof of concept customers, you know, we, we said to one of our customers said, you've got 400 out of stops. And they're like, no. And then we showed them the photographs. Look, you know, our robot found 400 out of stocks and we're all scratching our heads. And then we looked through the photographs and you could see empty, just empty everything, right? Beyond toilet paper. You know, the whole th time we're going, who's buying all this toilet paper, Right. But then all of a sudden, everyone started buying all the Nutella. And then it was, then it was uh, something else, you know. And luckily, they didn't buy all the beer because that's what I was buying anyway. Uh, but but they were buying lots of different things were out of stock. The beer stocks are doing pretty well in these stores, despite all of this. So that's a very uh, compelling use case, uh, spotting out of stocks, because uh, that way you can drive lift in sales. The better job you do of having uh, product on shelves. Um, 
And uh, presumably you can do that with all sorts of auto ID technology. So RFID and all that kind of thing it doesn't just have to be cameras. I wonder if there's a company that has such a technology. We're actually working, and as you know, we're working with Williot now. Um, and we've had a lot of conversations that you don't know about internally that we're, you know, we're, we're going to build the sensors. We're already actively looking at where we're going to mount it and do that kind of stuff so that we can just help discover stuff with, with uh, your Bluetooth technology, which will be awesome. And um, there's a lot of things that can't be localized or located with, with the vision. For example, if as a human, I have to manipulate an item to know what it is. Like it could be a shirt. Is it long sleeve or short sleeve? Is it large, smaller? I can't, I can't do that. I can't look at the side of a shirt as a human and say, well, that's a small shirt. Um, and a robot can't do that either. So if it has to be articulated in any way, um, something, a tag like, like you guys make is perfect because then I just look and I can say, well, I read, the, I read these RF signatures of all these items here and there's four extra large short sleeve, this skew of shirt. And so we can exactly talk about things that are really hard for a robot to see using vision. You package goods on a shelf, pretty easy, like a can of Campbell's soup or a box of cherry Pop-Tarts. Pretty easy to use computer vision for that kind of thing. But clothes and tires and all the kinds of things that you would have to inspect closely as a human, you know, we're looking at you guys to help us with that. Well, I think it's actually a fascinating uh, business strategy that you've got. You've found a use case which is very... I mean, it's compelling. People need to have stores clean. They need them cleaned more often now. So that's kind of like your base uh, of getting the, the system in there. And then you can hook all of these other kinds of sensors on. And, you know, it can be very challenging, whether it's Bluetooth tags, Bluetooth beacons, the Williot uh, battery-free Bluetooth, or even RFID. Typically, to blanket a massive store with scanners and readers that's going to cover everything, it's kind of expensive. But if you have a mobile reader that's dependably scanning on a given cadence, then I think uh, you, you have a great opportunity to provide something that is cost-effective and can um, extend the reach of the Internet of Things to places where it hasn't been before. Um, so I, obviously, we love what you're doing. Um, but I'm sure that... Um, you know, like any new technology, people get a bit scared. Um, uh, they get scared of a number of things, you know, people losing their jobs and people getting hurt. We've already talked about the, the safety thing. And I guess you've, you've already preempted, maybe you've already preempted the people losing uh, jobs. But w what's your general observation about what people are scared of? Is fear an issue that you have to deal with as the, uh, the, the business development guy? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think um, there, there's always a lot of fear. I think the biggest fear has been... There, and there's always fear of new technologies. I'm, my dad was afraid of the internet, you know, and he always called the stockbroker. I'm like, dad, you can look online. He was like, nope, don't trust it. It's my money. So um, there's a, I think there's, when you bring on any level of, of innovation, there, that there's going to be a, a fear. Um, I think people losing jobs is, is a big question uh, that everyone has. Uh, some people are convinced that it, it's, it's happening or going to happen with, with all kinds of, I mean, yeah, imagine at one point there were ladies plugging wires in to connect phone calls and now there's a computer that does that and that was a level of automation. The cotton gin is a level of automation. Were people afraid of the cotton gin? They probably were at the time. Yeah. Are we afraid of one now? No, we're not. Why? Because we, we have cheaper cotton. We have che- what, ha- what is the result is we have cheaper clothes because as a result of automation. Automation around food processing and, and shopping and things like that help things help the price come down of things and give people more access to things. Um, and there's a guy at our company, Phil Duffy, who says it best. Um, robots are meant to do the three D's of, of human work, the dull, the dirty, and the dangerous. And um, if you think about that, if we take away the dull, the dullness, um, what is, what is, is that good for human, humanity to take away dull things and dirty things and, and especially dangerous things? It seems like a good thing, right? It's, it seems like that is a good purpose to take the, those parts of a job out. It's not taking a job away. It's taking those parts of a job out. It, and I realized all this when I got my own Roomba, so to speak, here, because I clean my own house. And I let that Roomba go. It gets most of the stuff. I got a little hand back to get around the other areas, but then I get to clean my bathrooms and wash the clothes and do all those other things. So, and that's, you know, taking care of all while that thing's going around, vacuuming up, vacuuming up most of the stuff. And I'm always surprised when I empty the bucket on that thing, how much dirt's in there, you know? It's like pretty, pretty incredible. And I don't want to push that thing around that. I don't want, I don't want to spend my time doing that. And it just enables, like I've said, it's, no one's, got, no one's gotten fired that I've known about. You know, someone's got to manage that robot, too. It's robot right. overlords now. In the airport, they, the janitor's a robot overlord, and they're keeping the other parts of the airport clean. So from ethics to uh, one more geeky question. So we're rushing from one side of the boat to the other, but I realize we're kind of running low, a little low on time, so I want to make sure we get to this. How does the robot know where it is? Uh, you like if I was to spin this thing around in the store, would it like get lost and start plowing through the shelves or, or what's that? So the robots have cameras and lidars and sensors, and they also have uh, just like your cell phone has all uh, six axis kind of thing, so it kind of knows its orientation. Robots yeah. have that too. Compass of which way it's it's pointed. Um, so the way it works now, I call this version one. It's a teach and repeat sort of model. So a home marker is placed in the area, in the airport or the store or wherever, which is origin zero, zero. Think of Cartesian grid back to calculus, or no, back to algebra. Mm-hmm. And, um, and zero, zero is a known home marker. 
the robot scans that marker, then the janitor drives it around the way they would normally clean, mm -hmm. and they come back to the home marker, and then they hit the save button, and then that saves that path or that cleaning method. And then to, to do that again, the janitor pulls up to the home marker and says, do route number one. And then the robot does exactly what the janitor did the first time. So the janitor has taught the robot how to clean. Um, and there might be a way that the janitor cleans when it rains or the way the janitor clean when it cleans when it snows or just a daily sort of quick clean or, you know, a heavy traffic clean or during pandemic clean where we've got only certain people in certain parts. Mm -hmm. And so all those can be stored. The janitor teaches, teaches it. And basically it doesn't get all the way to the edge. And so there's still, just like Roombas don't quite get everything perfectly. There's still a little spot cleaning to do on the floor. It frees yeah. up the janitor to clean other, other surfaces and other places, which, you know, especially now um, is, is becoming more important, but it's, it's called teach and repeat. That's version one. Um, just before the pandemic started, I walked in my office and there was a little vacuum R2D2 looking hundred pound robot in my office. And I'm like, what, what do you, what is this? What are you doing in here? Um, people actually want to talk to them. We, that's why we don't have that user interface because I always thought it would be cool. Like, Hey Dave, what's up? You know, yeah. but, but apparently then you want to talk to the robot and then it doesn't do its job. But, um, uh, we're, version two is we're now working on an AI, which is called self discovery where, where you can, a janitor now can just turn the robot loose and it'll, explore the area it'll know oh i'm a vacuum this is carpet that's shiny floor so and then it builds its own map of the area and then it's, it goes around and cleans the carpet only um and the janitor doesn't have to spend the time training multiple routes they can always go back and do that if they want because they may know something that is too hard to, to automate they may know well it it rains or it's actually extra dirty over here because there, there was a horrible accident of some kind and then the robot can go into full manual mode and, and then the janitor can do that with the robot. So, so what happens if um, someone, uh, you train the ray robot, it gets the lay of the, the store and then someone puts some kind of display that blocks one of the aisles. Is, what's the result of that? So, in, in, and this is back to version one. So version one, we've taken a manual machine and put it and put sensors and compute on it mm -hmm. so that it can be automated. Yeah. Well, if you, and, and then there's another version of a robot that we built under contract for a company um, that basically can spin around on itself so it can go in reverse, essentially. Okay. The, the sensors and computer are pretty expensive and generally forward facing. So while a human can drive these man, big manual machines in reverse, it, it doesn't go into reverse automatically. Okay. And so, if a robot goes down an aisle that it previously went and it's completely blocked, I mean, the robot will look for a space that it can fit through safely. And if it can't, it'll stop and it'll text the janitor. And it's, we call that an assist. They'll say, hey, I'm stuck. Come help me. Huh? And so then the janitor comes and either moves the thing out of the way and then restarts the robot or gets up and drives the robot back onto the path and sets it about its path again. That's still version one. You know, at some point, the people making these big manual machines will make a, a more autonomous version that can spin out around on itself and then we'll have less, less assists. But the reason we don't have sensors on the back is because it's expensive. It's, you know, a lot of expensive stuff looking forward to have all that stuff look backwards too. It becomes economically prohibitive to, to make a, a robot work well. And so 
ultimately the design of the mechanical design will follow the abilities of the sensors and you know expense will be optimized in the design i believe but we've done it already with a, a small vacuum and i i assume that that will extrapolate into the larger form factors and where do you think this is all going to go in uh, 10 years time or whatever the, the What's that's my favorite question. I'm really good at the long term. I'm not so good at like, what do I have to do today? <laughs> oh, shoot, I forgot to call that customer. So uh, I believe it, we, we went through this experience at Qualcomm, where phones used to go like this. And they did one thing, they, I make a phone call, and that's it. And I remember starting the app store back in the 90s, and going out going to Silicon Valley and going, hey, all you developers, you can write code on this phone. It's a computer. And people just going, but that's a phone. That, what, 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 that doesn't make sense. And then watching that ultimately, so we had a single use case phone. I remember working on the first camera phone with the inventor of the camera phone and helping the code work on that thing. And that um, all of a sudden now I have a camera in my pocket all the time. And as that camera got better, I stopped carrying my really good camera around. Why? The, Paul Jacobs used to say, it's a camera that's with, with you that, that matters. You know, if you got this big heavy thing and it's not with you, there's a beautiful picture, what, you know, what are you gonna do? Even if it's not a beautiful, uh, great resolution, you're still gonna use what you have. Um, and so that was sort of the first dual use case. And then as it grew into a platform, thank you Apple, thank you Android and Google, as it grew into this platform, all of a sudden a phone has become this thing that it, it's a guitar tuner, it's a, it's a, a navigation device, it's all these things with the Snapchat and Uber, what the heck, who even thought of Uber? Who even, the platform enabled this whole business to be created, which employs millions of people. No one, no one even thought of those things. It became this thing that no, so robots in 10 years, I'm sure there's gonna be all the stuff we never thought about. Also, um, multiple use case, we're already tracking down multiple use cases. I'm cleaning floors, and I'm collecting data. What happens is the ROI goes from this amount of time to this amount of time. So pretty soon, you know, it's like a very valuable thing. And, you know, I always imagine like a humanoid robot with a mop is cleaning the floor, you know, and that, that's what, and then it does other, and then we get to talk to them at some point, you know. But um, the smartphone to me is sort of the, the, the analog here with the, yep. what's gonna happen is multi, more use cases are gonna happen, more value is gonna be piled on there. Um, and I believe that things are gonna happen with robots, most importantly, that people can't do. And even now with shelf scanning, people can't possibly go around and scan the stuff in a store as quickly as a robot, you can't. So providing this inventory report is already a first example of something that I believe people can't do. It did take them a week to do that work, and by the time, it, it, and they need it every 24 hours. So they're still working on it while the, the report's needed. So, there's going to be this whole Paul Bunyan effect, if you remember that cartoon where Paul Bunyan had the ox and the axe, and, the, and then there was a guy with the chainsaw. I remember a cartoon when I was a kid. Um, but it, I think that it's going to elevate, truly elevate into a place that is going to create businesses we can't imagine right now, create all kinds of stuff that if I, if, if I even had a time machine and came back and told you what would happen, you wouldn't believe me. And yeah. so, you know, I'm just excited. And to me, making it more and more of a platform to enable more creative people to come in and partner and do stuff like we're doing with, with your sensors and with our reader and all these, that's just a small step in, in many more steps, heavily partnering, just like the App Store was. In the App Store we had, you know, Apple currently has 2 million apps. And I remember when Verizon told us at one point, no more than 30 apps on a phone, that's too many apps. 
And it's like 30 apps is too many apps. Who believed that? And so, but now look at what, look at that smartphone. And to me, robot, same sort of path. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, BrainCorp, definitely company to, to watch. You, you have kind of this uh, knack of, uh, uh, of sniffing out really cool technology and working with it. I kind of think of you a, a bit like the Zelig of, uh, of, of high tech. You were there when, uh, you know, the first app stores, I, I remember, you know, Qualcomm did billions of dollars of revenue through app stores before. Billions, right? Before, I remember we didn't even do a dollar. We were an expense. <laughs> But, but it's not me. I just put myself in the orbit of people like you. That's the secret. <laughs> you just get smart people in your orbit and you're, you're having a magical life, you know? And it's, yeah. the, the people true. at Brain are so amazing. The, the Botan, Eugene, the co-founders, all those people are just such amazing people. And I'm just in, I'm just in their orbit. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for giving us a glimpse of what you guys are up to. Uh, it's, it's really clever. Uh, it's practical, but it has so much potential, and uh, I wish you well. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And by the way, I am going to Mars. So, you know, Henry Ford said it best. Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And I'm going to Mars. <laughs> very good. Love that attitude. Dave huh? Ross, BrainCorp, thank you very much. Thank you. You're quite musical, aren't you? Uh, I, I love music. I play guitar. Um, I don't know if you were at Qualcomm because I kind of snuck my band back at the time into a few events. Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, love music, always have. And, um, but I, I, I'm not, I want to say I'm not talented, but I'm, I try to I do my best. I haven't had my 10,000 hours yet. Okay. Malcolm Gladwell, great, uh, great author. So, so what are the three songs that you would take on a trip to Mars? So the three, three songs, so the wake up song, I, and I got, so, so there's always a background song, um, you know, just kind of at lower volume. Um, and that would be Rocket Man, of course, because um, that's, that's what you're doing is you're in a rocket. And it's just kind of like background elevator music many versions of it by many different people Ho hopefully i could you know rotate and make it sound different but if i only got one person to choose from um uh that person is taryn egerton's version but all right um but, it's my favorite version of that have you have you seen elton john uh perform i well, i've seen him a few times live my favorite live performer is elton john by far ah. um, and he, Rocket Man is always, everything's great. Like he's true to the, you know, he knows people want to hear it. Like he, not, he, he knows people don't want to hear a funky version. And so um, he's just amazing. And um, his version's fine also, but Taron Egerton's got sort of a, a nice sort of relaxing kind of uh, um, version of it that I think is kind of, might, might make a heart rate go down a little bit, which would be nice. All right. That's and then um, to wake up in the morning, and to, which is a very energetic song. It's a song by Cowboy Mouth called Disconnected. And um, it's, you're disconnected. So, I mean, there's no GPS. There's no, probably no way to really talk back to earth um, all the time. So you're disconnected. And then um, for falling asleep, of course, free falling. 
but I like the John Mayer version the best. All right, fantastic. And do you play those when you're on stage? I don't know that we've ever played those. Maybe free falling or something. I'm not a singer. Um, if I if I sang them, I'd know because I'd have to memorize them. But I, I remember that we all used to kind of cheat and have like an iPad or something with the words on it and, and right. do that sort of teleprompter thing. Very good. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. Awesome. What, what are your versions? Does anyone ever ask you for yours? I want to know your three. Oh, well, uh, very rarely, actually. Yeah, very, very, very People rarely. like to talk about themselves. <laughs> uh, I'd probably have some Elton John uh, because, uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I just really got into uh, Captain Fantastic. That album cover was uh, hypnotic and... Uh, and so I'd probably choose Captain Fantastic in the brand that uh, cowboy. Uh, I think I would also have some David Bowie uh, for, I, I did a radio show when I was at college called Brubeck to, to Bowie. And uh, uh, he reminds me of uh, lots of different incidents and people that I met through the radio show and the, and the radio station. Um, and so I'd probably have Hunky Dory. Uh, but so many different songs that I would love. I loved his last album. I thought that was uh, pretty amazing to make that, knowing that you're headed off into the wide blue yonder and so forth. And um, I think I might choose Dave Brubeck for sentimental reasons. I, I, I saw him play live when he was alive, and he was a real favorite of my parents, and so it would be kind of... Uh, a nice family thing. So, it's it's how music is connected to memory and how we want to drag our memories with us to Mars, right? It is, and it's a personal thing. Um, there's this show called Desert Island Discs where I borrowed this device from, and um, it's one of the best interview shows in the world. Uh, and I think one of the reasons, and it's been going for, it's the longest running one, it's been going for like over 70 years since during the war. They had Vera, Dame Vera Lynn on and uh, Arthur Askey and a whole bunch of people that no one's ever heard of now, but because um, they're dead. <laughs> but it's such a great show because people relax and it gets personal and people let their guard down a little bit. And so it's just my way of learning a bit about the people I'm talking to. And it's probably my favorite part of this uh, whole exercise. So, uh, cool. so there we go. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And that, I didn't ever knew you had, you were a uh, uh, disc jockey. I mean, and when you talk about album covers, it's like, who even, who even knows what that is? I mean, you've got to be a certain age to even know what an album is and an album cover, or even, you know, even CD-ROMs. No one cared about the art so much. But I, I remember always looking through the album covers, and just, well, I could never afford them. You know, they were always too much money. I could barely afford the dollar singles. And, uh, and it just was uh, – the album covers were so – Boston was the one I remember the most, just – I can uh -huh. probably draw that one. Oh, yeah. With the, was that the Flying Saucer thing? But it was a guitar also. Oh. It was a, the Flying Saucer was like a, a particular view, perspective of a guitar. So, and it was just cool. I just, for some reason, that one sticks in my mind. But Yeah. Very good. All right. Thanks a lot. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.